Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. After my interview with Benjamin Applebaum, Jay will join me for a conservative perspective. My guest today is Benjamin Applebaum, who writes about economics and business for the editorial page of the New York Times. From 2010 through 2019, he was a Washington correspondent for the Times, covering economic policy in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis. Today, we'll be talking about his recently released book, The Economist Hour. Benjamin Applebaum, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. You know, I thought we'd start with the title. Uh, it's kind of an intriguing title, The Economist's Hour. So what exactly was The Economist's Hour? This book is the story of a revolution that gets underway in the late 1960s and the early 1970s, where economists begin to exert a, a much greater influence uh, over government policy in the United States and around the rest of the world. Uh, these economists are particularly uh, of the school of thought that says that uh, government should should pull back from actively managing the economy and allow markets to play a larger role. And for you know roughly four decades, from you know say the late '60s through the Great Financial Crisis in in 2008, uh, this uh, this approach to economic policy is really dominant. And that 40-year period is, is what I refer to as, as the economist's hour. One of the things that really struck me in the book, I guess it's because for most of my, for really my entire lifetime, we've been in this period, but how in previous times, how uh, economists' opinion were, were not even considered and somewhat were barely sort of dismissed. And it, was, it was really kind of stunning to me to read that. I, I begin the book with the story of a young economist in the mid-1950s who worked in the bowels of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, uh, and who came to feel that he didn't really have a future at the Fed, which at the time was run by bankers, uh, an Iowa hog farmer, uh, other financial professionals, but but no economists. And he came home one night and told his wife, listen, I, I don't think I can make a career at the Federal Reserve. <laughs> well, that economist's name was Paul Volcker. Wow. And by the end of the 1970s, he was running the Federal Reserve. And today, the Fed is not only substantially run by economists, but it is the world's largest employer of economists. Wow. So there really was this transformation where a field that had really been on the margins of policymaking uh, came into the mainstream and indeed to take the dominant position. Yeah. Now, if People, uh, we have listeners who are both liberal and conservative on the show, and I would imagine that some of the more conservative listeners would first off hear New York Times and then hear uh, the subtitle of the book, which is False Profits, Free Markets, and the Fracture of Society, and think, oh, this is just some anti-market guy. But that would be a mischaracterization, wouldn't it? On two levels. Uh, the first is that I think markets are wonderful. Uh, and important, and we've never found a better system of organizing an economy. Uh, but the thing that I think got lost is that markets exist in a context. They need to be regulated in order to operate as well as possible. They need to have rules that are enforced in order to operate as well as possible. And they need to be structured to produce the results that a society wants uh, from its markets. And the second more historical point is that 
this is the story of a revolution that had many benefits, but like revolutions often tend to do, it went too far. Uh, and so this is, you know, it's a nuanced story. It's not an indictment of what happened. It's it's primarily an attempt to just to narrate what happened so people understand the history. Uh, but in examining the consequences, I think it's important to look both at what was beneficial about this period and the respects in which uh, it has caused some damage. And in a way, it seems to me, it, it you could say that this is something of a counter-revolution against uh, Keynesian economics. And I thought maybe before we got into the nature of this uh, free market counter-revolution, that it might be helpful for some listeners to get a sense of that what that Keynesian view was of you know how they saw the role of government in the economy. Could you sort of briefly sketch that out? Absolutely. Uh, modern macroeconomics, the discipline of trying to manage the whole economy, begins during the Great Depression. When the Great Depression hits the United States, the federal government literally has no idea how large the American economy is. So they can't quantify the damage. And they hire an economist in the early 1930s, a guy named Kuznets, to try and figure out how large the economy is. And it takes him about two years to make the first estimate. And he comes back to Congress and says, well, the economy used to be this large, and now it's quite a bit smaller. Uh, and that's the he's the guy who invented what we call GDP, gross domestic product, which is still the main system for measuring the size of an economy. So that's an innovation. That's something that didn't exist in the world before that moment. And once you know how large the economy is, you can begin to think about how to manage it and optimize it and and try to direct it toward better results. And so you get uh, the most the most uh, famous advocate for this type of management is a British economist named John Maynard Keynes. Uh, and he sets out some rules, which in his judgment are the best way to to manage an economy, to, to limit recessions, to encourage growth over time, to maximize prosperity. Uh, and so in the decades after World War II, that approach predominates in the Western world. Keynesianism is the dominant school of thinking about how to manage an economy. And it's basically a very activist approach. The idea is that the economy is a machine and we can fine tune it. We can add fuel when we need to. We can hit the brakes when we need to. We can direct resources in ways that will ultimately increase prosperity. Government has this important role to play as an active force in the economy. And that's the school of thought that prevails uh, really through the 60s uh, and that begins to crumble uh, really at the beginning of the story that I tell in this book. And the main, to the extent that they're sort of a leading figure in the book, I, I would say it's the Chicago economist Milton Friedman, who definitely didn't feel, uh, didn't agree with that activist view. In fact, he was probably, I would say, the leading proponent of uh, monetarism. And can you also kind of explain what that monetarist view was? Friedman's a fascinating character. Oh, yeah. So. He he grows up, he's this sort of uh, short, bulldog-like little guy who dominates any room. He enters uh, an incredibly skilled and forceful debater and advocate for his views. Uh, one of his friends liked to say that the best way to argue with Milton was to wait until he left the room, because <laughs> then you would have an even chance. Uh, and Friedman grows up during the Great Depression, but he draws a very different conclusion from it than many others of his generation. He looks at what has happened and he says, everyone else is looking at it and saying government is the solution. The lesson of the Great Depression is that we need a new deal. We need a new approach to government. 
He looks at it and says, government is the problem. What's wrong with the American economy uh, is that the government is overly involved and trying to do too much. And it has the best of intentions, but that's not good enough. And as early as the 1940s and then more forcefully during the 50s and 60s, Friedman is articulating this wide-ranging critique of government policy in area after area, always on a constant theme. Things would be better if government would step back and do less. And the most famous instance of this is what's called monetarism, uh, which is his argument that in the area of monetary policy, uh, the, the central bank and its role in managing the amount of money circulating through the economy and regulating the ups and downs of the economy. Friedman says, what we need, we don't even need a central bank. What we should have is a computer uh, that regularly increases the supply of money. Human decision-making is not good. Uh, we're operating in darkness in the face of profound uncertainties, and we would do better if we just picked a line and stuck to it. And that is the monetarist critique. In the Keynesian view, kind of by way of contrast, right, they believe that what we call fiscal policy, taxing and spending decisions that are made, uh, can, be, uh, can be an important component of regulating or managing the economy. But that's something that Friedman would very much disagree with, right? Absolutely. Yeah, there's a, in technical terms, their basic disagreement is, is the following. Friedman maintains that what is going to determine how much financial activity is happening in the economy is basically how much money is in the economy. And the, the Keynesians say, no, that's not right. You could have a lot of money and it could be sitting in a piggy bank, or you could have a lot of money and it could be spent several times in the same day as it moves from the kid to the candy store owner to his bank to the borrower. There's, you know, what matters is not so much the amount of money, but the velocity, the frequency of use. That's the technical disagreement. The, and, and the implication of that disagreement is that Friedman thinks the only thing that matters is how much money the central bank is creating. And the Keynesians think that government can actively you know, contribute to economic conditions by spending money uh, and increasing the velocity and, and sort of making sure that money is churning through the economy more quickly. And then at the most abstract level, what they're really arguing about is how you deal with uncertainty. Friedman is saying basically, Listen, given the constraints on what we know and what we can do, the best thing to do is just pick a straight line. And the Keynesians are saying, no, let's move situationally through this dark room. Let's try to feel if there's an armchair over here or a table over there and chart a course, uh, you know, step by step, try to manage conditions as we go. You know, that issue of velocity, that, that's kind of puzzling to me because it seems to me almost commonsensical that velocity would would matter just given the example that that you give as long as people don't you know have their have people have their money under, under a mattress it's not contributing at all but is is it friedman's view do you think was friedman's view that well if people have their money invested it's going to be moving around anyway i mean i really struggle to understand how he seemed to discount the importance of this. And maybe it's a technical point, but it's just something that bugged me, I guess, a little bit. So we should begin by saying that he was wrong. We yeah. now have very good evidence that velocity matters. Yeah. But it, the premise of what he was arguing was basically that there are regularities in nature at a large scale. Things that appear to us to be random patterns often fall into regular distributions. We think of ourselves as very unpredictable 
making decisions on a day-to-day basis, responding to circumstances. Anything could happen. Anything does. But the truth is that if you sort of zoom out to 20,000 feet, uh, things can start to look a lot more orderly. Uh, And my decision here is offset by your decision over there. And you get empirical regularities over time. And maybe there isn't quite so much chaos as one might believe in the first place. Uh, and so, I, I, and I think that's right. And and he he was right to observe that, you know, the extent of these variations was probably being overstated by mid-century proponents, and specifically the extent of the government's ability to productively intervene into the economy is actually uh, circumscribed by a number of other factors. Uh, and so, you know, part of what gets lost in in the retelling is that the pendulum in this debate had probably swung over too far to the other side. Mm-hmm. And Friedman was urging it back toward his side. And, and you know, he went too far in his argument, but there was something to what he was saying. It wasn't, it wasn't crazy yeah. uh, to, to think that, you know, the variability of velocity was being overstated. I think a lot of people, when they, when they think about, especially I would say conservatives, when they think about Milton Friedman, they would say the greatest test of his ideas happened in the, in the late 1970s, early 80s, when, as the sort of conventional wisdom has it, that uh, Paul Volcker, who was Fed chairman at the time, uh, broke the back of really debilitating inflation by applying sort of a, a, a free, Friedmanian, I don't know, solution, you know, cranking up interest rates. And sure, that caused a, a short recession, but it saved the economy. At least that's, that's the view that I hear more than anything else. What do you think about that view? Is that more or less correct? By the late 70s, faith in these Keynesian ideas that we've talked about is really breaking down. I tell the story in the book of a woman named Juanita Kreps, who was a professor of economics at Duke University uh, and also the the Secretary of Commerce in the Carter administration. And she resigns from the administration because she says that she's lost faith in their ability to manage the economy. Uh, in wow. the 70s, you've got this period of, of stagflation, high, high inflation and high unemployment the same time and these old Keynesian ideas just aren't working. And then she resigns as a professor at Duke University because she says she no longer knows what to teach her students about economics. And that really summarizes the depth of Keynesian despair by the late 70s. Their view of the world had just broken down. It wasn't working. Their predictions weren't coming true. Their policies weren't producing the desired results. And into that void, Milton Friedman, who I think very wisely has observed that the way that you have influence uh, as an intellectual is by preparing alternatives that are ready in the hour of crisis so that the policymaker goes to the refrigerator and looks inside. They know they need something different. They look and your option is there and they take it. And what happens in the late 70s and the early 80s is that it's obvious that the old approach to policy is broken and policymakers are searching for something new and they decide to adopt and embrace Friedman's ideas. Under Paul Volcker, uh, who died uh, this month, uh, the Federal Reserve uh, embraces a monetarist approach to policy. They decide to sort of take Friedman's idea of strictly regulating the money supply. They drive the economy into a deep recession, and they succeed in breaking the back of inflation. We really haven't had significant inflation since uh, the early days of Volcker's regime. So what, what, what were the economic consequences? This is often told as a triumphalist narrative about 
the right. dawn of an era of renewed prosperity. I don't think it's that simple. It, it is true that they brought inflation under control, but they did so at the expense of tolerating higher unemployment. Uh, in the following decades, it was regularly the case that millions of Americans were kept out of work for the sake of maintaining low inflation. Uh, they did it at the expense of America's manufacturing base, uh, which shifted overseas in part because these tight money policies made the dollar and American exports significantly more expensive in foreign countries. They did it at the expense of inequality uh, because these policies also had the effect of shifting wealth, the shifting the distribution of wealth, uh, you know, toward the the shape that we see today, where we have a small number of very rich people and and everyone else uh, more or less stagnating economically. So it worked, but it had a lot of side effects, and yeah. I'm not sure that. Uh, and so, in aggregate, one wants to be aware of that as well. Because the traditional view, if I understand it correctly, is that there's always going to be a trade-off between unemployment and inflation. But the monetarists actually argued that, well, not necessarily, maybe there is something of a trade-off, but as long as we keep that money supply stable, the market will essentially find the most efficient balance between those two things. Is that, is that sort of, is that right? The, the Keynesians argued that you could there was a trade-off in that you could slide up and down the curve, that right. you could trade off higher inflation for lower unemployment, that if you were willing to tolerate 4% un, uh, inflation, then you could have 1% unemployment, uh, that this was a menu of options and the policymaker could just pick from it. Uh, and part of Friedman's critique was he said, no, there's a, there's a natural level of unemployment. And if you try to push unemployment lower than that, you will get higher inflation. Uh, and and so you can't just decide that you want to minimize unemployment and and expect no consequences. Uh, that monetary policy didn't have the power that was being ascribed to it by the Keynesians. Uh, and that idea, uh, what's called the Phillips curve, uh, you know, the the Friedman's modified Phillips curve r- remains influential in monetary policy, although it's under attack now. But but the idea that that relate there is some relationship clearly between inflation and unemployment. Everyone agrees about that. The exact contours of that relationship uh, are really the heart of of the debate that he's having with the Keynesians. And the core point that he's making is, you know, you're you're ascribing too much power to government. Government doesn't have the ability. And and his proof was the 70s that you know here you have this period of very high inflation, and you said if we tolerated high inflation, we would get lower unemployment. Right. And in fact, we've got both high inflation and high unemployment. And the reason is that you're you're trying too hard. You're you're causing the economy to overheat, and that is driving unemployment as well as inflation. So in this environment, we have the Keynesians who are confused, understandably so, and then we have the monetarists and Friedman. But there's also a, a another school of thought that comes up: the supply siders. A, a supply side thought became very big, especially in the in the 80s, and it seems to me, I would argue, up until the present. So, what is it that supply siders believe about the economy? So, the supply side school began as yet another response to stagflation to this set of problems in the 1970s. And what they argued was that you could control inflation most effectively uh, by raising interest rates, by by operating a tight monetary policy, much like the monetarists prescribed, and simultaneously cutting taxes. 
what we really know the supply siders for today is their case for cutting taxes, which was embraced by the Republican Party and became the centerpiece of its approach to fiscal policy. The idea that if you reduce tax rates, particularly for high earners, uh, you will get enormous economic benefits. They will be encouraged to invest, to earn more, to invest more, and that the benefits of that activity will trickle down to the rest of the economy. And this idea really gains influence in the 70s uh, and becomes the centerpiece of Reagan's uh, economic agenda in the 80s. But for a while, at least, there were plenty of prominent Republicans, including a couple of my all-time favorite Republicans, who were very much against this. Right? I mean, George H.W. Bush, in running against Reagan in 1980, called it voodoo economics. And uh, Bob Dole, who uh, had, who had a, really had, I think, an under, underappreciated sense of humor, had that joke, right? The good news is a bus full of supply siders went off a cliff last night. The bad news is that there were three empty seats. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, and that's wasn't two people. There were there was a lot of opposition at first. Why why was that? And how did they get won over? This was an attack on orthodoxy. This was an attack on the prevailing orthodoxy of of the you know conservative traditionalist wing of the Republican Party, which had long held that you know responsible fiscal policy meant keeping deficits under control. And the problem was that by the seventies, from a Republican perspective. This had become a constraint on their ability to cut taxes because they couldn't cut taxes without cutting spending or else they'd produce larger deficits. And Democrats weren't willing to cut spending, so Republicans weren't willing to cut taxes. And and what you get is uh, really a group of polemicists, a very talented polemicists, uh, including a guy named Jude Winiski, who was an editorial writer at the Wall Street Journal, who begin to advocate for Republicans to turn this equation on its head and to say Democrats basically. You guys keep handing out spending increases to the general public. Well, we're going to turn it. We're going to hand out tax cuts for the general public. We also have a program, an economic program that could be popular. And we're not that worried about deficits anymore, in part because we think that these tax cuts will be so stimulative that that their benefits, uh, you know, will fill the government's coffers, in part because we think the, the, the downside of deficits is overstated. We can borrow money from other countries. We can borrow money from Japan or Saudi Arabia uh, or Germany, and and in that way cover our our needs. And so, you know, we've been very restrained about advocating for tax cuts, but now we're going to go for it. And older guard Republicans look at this with horror. They they are they regard these these wild men as crazy. They say, you know, you're being irresponsible. This is not actually a viable approach to fiscal policy. But it is enormously politically attractive. Yeah. And so a new generation of politicians, including Ronald Reagan, embrace this set of ideas and advocate for it. And it is, as a matter of politics, enormously successful. And there were also, it seems to me, this group of Republicans who are largely Republicans and conservatives who made the, the bet that if we keep on cutting taxes enough— We'll eventually get to the point where we'll, uh, in this sort of game of chicken, uh, we'll, we'll have to cut spending. And so it's sort of a starve the beast philosophy, right? Mm, yes, that's absolutely right. There were, Milton Friedman was actually a very prominent advocate for this idea that, you know, so the, the true supply siders maintained that federal deficits didn't matter. They weren't consequential. But there was a second group of people who signed up for this tax cut crusade. Uh, who saw it as a road to cutting government spending, that 
you could essentially force Democrats to acquiesce in spending cuts by constraining federal revenue so dramatically that the imperative to balance the budget would force uh, a reappraisal of federal spending. This, of course, is spectacularly wrong. Uh, The political equation has never proved out. Uh, It has not succeeded in constraining federal spending. What it has done instead is is to dramatically increase federal borrowing. Yeah. Uh, And there's also, I think, a third view here that I hear from a lot of conservatives even today. You might even call it a moral view and that people say, well, you know, tax, this is my money and taxation really for any other purpose than core governmental functions. uh, That's a form of legalized theft. It seems to me that's still a very prominent strain that would support this this sort of uh, tax cutting philosophy. Yeah, there's no doubt that you hear people saying that. Listen, nobody nobody disagrees on some level with the idea that government is making a claim on private resources and that it ought to justify that claim. Uh, and that the question before us is basically, to what extent do we as a society want to allocate our private resources to government for some set of, you know, important functions? Uh, the debate is just about a what should those functions be and b in a democracy if if you've agreed to do a certain set of things are you going to pay for it uh, and, and so you know I, I don't think anyone disagrees with that rationale I've never been sure that it's a particularly consequential rationale because uh, what matters is what we as a society have have agreed to pay for. You also talk a lot about antitrust law in your book. There's a great history of it. I learned quite a lot from that. So could you talk a little bit about the original goals of antitrust law? Because I think that's important because a lot of people don't, I think, understand what the original antitrust folks were aiming at and how that changed over time. As I set out to write this book, one of the open questions in my mind was the extent to which I would be able to show that the ideas of economists had emerged from the minds of specific thinkers and had traveled you know through their pens uh into the into 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 policy that they had been able to convince policymakers that they were the agents of these changes and what i found as i worked through the research for this book was that the paper trail is remarkably clear you really can watch ideas marching from the minds of specific thinkers uh, and into policy and into law and into practice. And one of the clearest examples of that trajectory is in the realm of antitrust policy. Antitrust is an American innovation. A- at the turn of the 20th century, in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, Americans become increasingly concerned about the rise of large corporations. Other societies took a very different approach to this, uh, embracing large corporations as state champions, as evidence of the strength of their economies. But in America, large corporations came to be seen as dangerous. Uh, And beginning with the Sherman Antitrust Act, Congress moves to constrain large corporations, to create laws that are predicated on the assumption that big business is not just bad for the economy, but it's bad for society. It makes it harder to be a small businessman. Uh, It's bad for democracy because it distorts the allocation of power. And therefore, we should prevent corporations from becoming too big and too powerful, even if there are economic benefits. So, you know, during the great debate about antitrust law, you get members of Congress standing up on the floor of the House and saying things like, yeah, maybe Standard Oil, which was the great monopoly of that day, 
Uh, maybe Standard Oil is delivering kerosene at lower prices than any competitor, but but that's not what we want. What we want is a landscape of diverse businesses. What we want is a strong democracy. We don't just want the lowest prices on kerosene. That's the roots of antitrust. And and into the mid-century, into the mid-20th century, that is in practice the way that antitrust is enforced in the United States. What happens is that economists, as they are rising to prominence in the mid-century, uh, economists at the University of Chicago, particularly a man named Aaron Director, who happened to be Milton Friedman's brother-in-law, begin to advocate a different approach to antitrust law. They basically say, listen, you know, this is a nice set of concerns you all have here, but it's impossible to quantify. Uh, and therefore, in practice, enforcement is extremely erratic. Businesses don't know what to expect. We need a simple and clear standard. And that standard should be consumer prices. What we really should mean by antitrust law is that if consumer welfare is being enhanced, then the corporate behavior is fine. And if consumers are being hurt, then the corporate behavior is not fine. And they succeed in convincing the federal judiciary to adopt this standard, to embrace it, because in part it's clear, uh, because in part uh, it has the effect of allowing corporations to do more of what they want to do. Uh, and they argue that this will be better for the economy, for consumers and for the broader economy. And so by the 80s, the courts are reliably ruling that businesses can merge uh, and acquire competitors and grow beyond the previous bounds of legality so long as consumer prices are still falling. And what we have today is a world in which the American economy is more consolidated uh, than it has been in a very long time, perhaps forever. Uh, you know, we have uh, two major beer makers and three cell phone companies and four airlines. And I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, and for the most part, it turns out that they were right about consumer prices. Uh, consumer prices have, at least to this point in history, you know, fallen during this era of corporate consolidation. But what we've lost track of are the other original concerns of the antitrust movement. Big business clearly is in a better position to suppress the wages of workers. There just aren't as many alternatives. And big business is in a position to suppress innovation because it's harder to start a company. And so the rate of business startups in America has fallen to a very low level. And I think there's very good reason to be concerned about the influence of big business on democracy. So this original set of concerns uh, got replaced by an economist's conception of what antitrust should be. Uh, and we're living with the consequences. And this change wasn't, it doesn't seem to me, as you described it in the book, wasn't an organic thing. I mean, there was a very impressive, I guess you could call it either educational or indoctrinational effort that was designed to win over the judiciary, correct? Absolutely, yeah. So it, it's organic in the sense that, you know, these thinkers arrive at their conclusions you know, independently, they they decide that this is a better approach. Uh, and then they, you know, are trying to convince other people of that. And they make, they find that they have, you know, a ready-made set of allies in the business community who are just delighted <laughs> by the idea <laughs> yeah. that these professors are expressing as like eternal verities, the things that they want most in the world. So if you're the chairman of Exxon and this professor shows up and says, you know, listen, I've, I've discovered in my work that it would be really great if Exxon was bigger. <laughs> you think this is wonderful. And so there's this real confluence of corporate interest and, and academic uh, interest around this antitrust issue. And listen, I mean, if you could get into people's minds, you could discover how venal they were. I'm, I'm not going to pronounce on it, but it is the case that you get 
you know, I write in the book about this paper that was published by a pair of UCLA economists in, in the mid-1970s. It's still often cited as one of the most important economics papers of the 20th century. The basic idea of that paper is that corporations are wonderful. They are, in fact, the best way to organize economic activity in a free society. Uh, and you get to the bottom of the first page, and there's a footnote that says, you know, this research was sponsored by the Eli Lilly Corporation. <laughs> well, you know, am I going to sit here and tell you that the economists wrote it because Eli Lilly paid them? No. But at the same time, it is the case that these economists and their ideas and the Eli Lilly Corporation and its money found common ground and agreed to work together. And that's clearly a big part of the story. And what you get is a guy named Henry Manny, who was one of Aaron Director's students at the University of Chicago Law School, sets up this, this seminar, this annual seminar for federal judges, which he wisely, he, his first seminars are in Rochester, New York, but then he decides to relocate to Miami, <laughs> uh, which helps, yeah. that, that encourages attendance. And, and by the end of, of the 80s, half of all federal judges have attended Manny's courses. And what happens at Manny's courses is you sit there uh, and prominent economists lecture you on free market ideas. Uh, and at the end of the course, you got a copy of Milton Friedman's uh, famous book, Capitalism and Freedom, to take home with you. Uh, and there is a very good study showing that you can actually document that after judges take these courses and go back and start ruling again, uh, they, they rule more in favor of business. They rule more in favor of uh, this set of free market ideas. It, it transformed American jurisprudence. Uh, and it did it both for liberal and conservative judges. It was a really a fascinating story. You also talk about deregulation in the book. And uh, since really the 1970s, we've seen much more of a move toward deregulation. And I think many people who cite the well cite the benefits of deregulation would point first and foremost to the airline industry because it seems to me to be a, a lot of folks to be a very clear case of well government got out of the way we got, we got more flights we got lower prices reduced air cargo costs it was an unqualified success and this is why we need to do deregulation is that a do you, would you say that's a fair conclusion so i think it's important to draw a distinction between two kinds of regulation. During the mid-century, the Keynesian era, if you will, uh, the government was very involved in a kind of regulation that, that has disappeared so much today that, that it's worth just reminding people of, of how pervasive it was. This was what's called the economic regulation or the regulation of prices and quantities. The government literally dictated across large swaths of the economy how much money you could charge to ship products from Cincinnati to Cleveland, well, from not from Cincinnati to Cleveland, but from Cincinnati to Louisville, uh, across state lines. Uh, if you wanted to move goods by truck or by train or by airplane, the government would tell you, you know, if you could do that and how much you could charge. Telecommunications was highly regulated. Air travel. Uh, the government thought nothing of telling steelmakers how much to charge for steel. Uh, you know, thought nothing of setting up price boards to determine the price of frozen chicken. There was this pervasive sense that the government had a role to play in managing prices. Uh, and that's the type of regulation that economists really systematically dismantle. The airline industry is the first and perhaps the most famous example. Uh, in the late 1970s, under the Carter administration, an economist named Alfred Kahn, who is quite a character in his own right, uh, sets about is, is tasked by Carter with liberating the airline industry from this type of regulation. The reason I'm saying that there's a distinction is during this same period, 
you see the rise of modern health and safety and environmental regulation. So the aggregate number of regulators employed by the federal government actually increases during these years. But there's this dramatic shift where, you know, at the outset of the 70s, 80 or 90 percent of them are employed in economic regulation. And by the end of the decade, it's, it's reversed. Uh, and, and you now have this new kind of regulation. So with regard to economic regulation and the deregulation of the airlines, for example, you know, this is where we get to the idea of a revolution that went too far. There is no question that deregulation democratized air travel. Uh, Americans today fly eight times more often than Americans did a half a century ago. Uh, flights are cheaper. Uh, they're, they're safer than they've ever been. Uh, air travel is, is widely available. And if everyone's miserable, well, that's a choice we've made. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're not willing to pay more than the amount required to transport us in misery. So that's air travel. And it's great. The problem that that emerges is that the government has so completely removed itself from the marketplace, has placed so much faith in free market competition, that the airline industry rapidly consolidates, and you end up with four big carriers. And anybody who's been online to search for, uh, you know, a, a ticket to go home for Christmas knows that you know the prices are all the same. And there's a reason for that, which is that there's no competition anymore, uh, and that's the result of a failure to regulate the marketplace. Uh, the antitrust rules that we were talking about a moment ago, the idea that the government ought to make sure that you don't end up with just a few large companies dominating air travel, for example, that that enforcement regime collapses. And the result is uh, that we're all we're all going to suffer from an absence of competition. Now, that was something that uh, let me see if I get the economist right, that I think George Stigler said would be impossible. Wasn't he the economist who said that uh, mar- it's not cartels that kill markets, but markets that kill cartels? Is that right? Am yeah. I- yeah. It's a great story. You know, so the, this is a great example of the triumph of theory over the, over the <laughs> real world. You know, so Stigler is one of the early proponents of economic deregulation. And he argues uh, really with, with great force and, and fervor and a fair amount of flair that that everyone is misunderstanding. Everyone is so concerned that, that businesses are going to collude with each other. Adam Smith, uh, you know, sort of the founder of economics, had, had famously said that you know any gathering of businessmen is almost inherently going to involve into a, devolve into a conspiracy to, to fix prices. And Stigler mocked this idea. He said, "No, that's wrong. Uh, it's really hard to, to have a cartel. It's really hard to, to maintain cooperation." Companies will try to take advantage of each other. They'll try to cheat. The thing will fall apart, and and consumers will be the ultimate beneficiaries. Well, you know, this was this was a you had two predictions there. You had Adam Smith's prediction, and you had George Stigler's prediction. And George Stigler's prediction was used as the basis for rewriting federal policy to essentially, you know, eliminate collusion as a concern. Uh, and then in the in the nineteen nineties. Uh, the Justice Department, aware that collusion might sometimes happen, makes this very interesting change in policy. They tell companies, listen, if you happen to be part of a cartel, they're trying to take advantage of Stigler's logic, which is that companies are looking for any opportunity to to put one over on their competitors. They say, you happen to be part of a cartel, and you are the first company to tell us about the cartel, you get off scot-free, everyone else gets punished. Ah, so <laughs> what happens? Yeah. They're not expecting much to happen. They don't think there are very many cartels. There is an absolute flood. Companies are are coming, you know, piling up, racing each other to get to the Justice Department. And these are just the cartels that are falling apart. And it turns out that, that cartel activity in the American economy is pervasive. 
All sorts of industries are massively colluding against the interests of consumers all the time, often on a very sustained basis. So, I mean, you know, this is one of these great tests of, of Stigler's theory, and, and it turns out that he, he could not have been more wrong. Yeah. Now, you mentioned previously the uh, that while we don't do economic regulation that much at all anymore in the United States, we do actually do quite a lot of uh, health and safety regulation. And in doing that, what's inevitable is that we have to weigh the cost of a human life. And in your telling of this story, what struck me maybe more than anything else was how that number bounced back and forth from administration to administration, where it, it seems like there was, I won't say there was no objective measure, but wow, there was a lot of subjectivity between how Republican and Democratic administrations valued human life for these calculations. Yeah. So one of the great contributions of economics to public policy is the rise of what's called cost-benefit analysis, which basically just means that uh, in making policy, the government is trying to systematically assess uh, and weigh the costs and benefits, to quantify costs and benefits so that it can make a comparison and, and reach a determination about whether a policy is worthwhile. So, for example, if you are considering requiring automakers to put stronger roofs on cars, you want to calculate how much that's going to cost, which is fairly straightforward. And then you want to think about, well, what are the benefits of stronger car roofs? You might say, we know there's a certain number of rollover crashes each year. This is how many people were killed last year. This is how many people were injured last year. Uh, and then you reach a very important question, which is, how do you put a dollar figure on that? How do you compare that uh, to the cost of actually installing stronger car roofs? Even if you know how many lives you'll save, how much is that worth? And so in, 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 the, in the 1970s, economists, and it's an amazing story, uh, begin to evolve a methodology for assigning a value to human life. We can talk about how they do that, but for the moment, let's just stipulate that they do it. Uh, and that number uh, is currently about $10 million a year. And, and once you know how much life is worth, it becomes easier to assess proposed changes in regulation and determine whether or not they're worthwhile. So there's a very scientific approach here in theory, scientific sounding, you know, yeah. careful, fancy calculations. But one of the profound truths about this methodology, which you just described, is that during Republican administrations, the government finds reasons to reduce the value of human life. Uh, it argues, for example, that old people are worth less money. Uh, it, it, it argues that you shouldn't ingest for inflation. Uh, and conversely, during democratic administrations, the government finds reasons to increase the value of human life, such as arguing that children are more valuable or that, uh, you know, some types of deaths are particularly painful and therefore should, uh, you know, we should pay more to avoid, say, cancer. Um, this is fascinating to me because what it really illustrates is, is the extent to which economics is ultimately political. Yeah. <laughs> uh, these are methodologies that can discipline our thinking. They can force us to assess costs and benefits, but it's really important to recognize that it's not science in the sense of physics. Uh, it is ultimately the assumptions that you make ultimately dictate the conclusions that you reach. Uh, and the pretense that this is a purely analytical process is nonsensical. Uh, we are, in fact, using, at best, we're using this system to discipline our thinking. Uh, but when we pretend that the conclusions are inviolable and absolute, then we're into the land of make-believe. Yeah, absolutely. And I just 
you just did a great job of illustrating that. I think that false certainty sometimes that people have when they see, you know, the hard data and the, the squishiness behind that was just made so evident in how you told that story. Uh, I also want to talk a little bit about international economics, which you cover in the book as well. And uh, Milton Friedman and the Chicago School of Economists believe that floating exchange rates would give us balanced trade and stability through you know, the workings of the market. And from the end of World War II up until the 1970s, we had, well, maybe not entirely fixed, but at least a mostly fixed exchange rate system. And so could you talk a little bit about why that ended? And even more importantly, if Friedman and, and that group was right about the superiority of floating exchange rates? So one of the first big breakthroughs in policy that Milton Friedman achieves uh, is is in the realm of exchange rates. After the second, or really in the dying days of the Second World War, the United States and its allies agree to create a, a new monetary system called the Bretton Woods system, uh, under which the values of other foreign currencies are fixed to the dollar at specified rates. So when you get off an airplane in the airport, there's no foreign exchange board there telling you how much you know the pound is worth, because the pound is worth exactly as much as it was yesterday, and it'll be worth the same amount tomorrow. And the idea is that this facilitates trade. It provides a degree of certainty uh, that allows businesses to invest with confidence and people to transact across borders with confidence that that currencies will remain in fixed relationships. Uh, so it sounds on the surface like a really good system, but by the late 60s and early 1970s, it was breaking down uh, because uh, those relationships ultimately need to be consistent with the strength of the economies that they represent. So what you had in that period was that the Japanese and German economies were growing much faster than the American economy, while the exchange rates between the dollar and the Deutsche Mark and the yen were remaining in place. Uh, and the effect was that, that in essence, uh, we were subsidizing, we were allowing German and Japanese products to be sold at a discount in the United States because the relative value of those currencies was was being changed by the faster growth of those economies. This was great for German and Japanese exporters. It was great for American consumers, but it was terrible for American companies that wanted A, to be selling to Americans and B, to be selling to the Germans and the Japanese. Uh, and the underlying problem was just that the fixed rates, a system of fixed rates that doesn't adjust to economic conditions ultimately becomes uh, you know, it preserves distortions. It it starts to crack under the pressure. And in the early 1970s, Milton Friedman convinces or plays a key role in convincing the Nixon administration to end the Bretton Woods Agreement, to blow it up. Nixon famously goes on TV on a Sunday night and announces, this was talked about at the time as a kind of gold standard, which it wasn't really, but be that as it may. Yeah. And he announces that the United States is is ending this agreement and and moving and over the next couple of years, it moves to a system of floating exchange rates where the 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 value of any currency in terms of another currency is just determined by what other people are willing to pay for it. And so it's fixed by the market. And now when you get off an airplane, you do need to consult the digital board to find out how much your money is worth. Uh, and that is a system that Milton Friedman had long advocated for as superior in terms of two things. First, he said it would increase global trade. It would facilitate trade. Stability was actually less important than accuracy. Uh, and on that dimension, he really appears to have been right. Uh, global trade has expanded massively uh, since the advent of floating exchange rates. 
And he also argued that it would be much better for economic stability, that exchange rates would reflect underlying market conditions and there would be fewer adjustments and this would allow uh, you know, economies to maintain their balance. And in that respect, he's been entirely wrong. Uh, the world of floating exchange rates is every bit as volatile as the world of yeah. fixed rates, maybe even more so. Uh, you know, financial crises have been a recurring phenomenon. In particular, uh, global capital flows have been very disruptive as, as money sloshes from one country to another. Uh, and so, you know, this new world has come with its own problems. Uh, but, you know, it's it's a great example of sometimes people look at, uh, you know, this era that we've lived through, this free market era, and they say, well, let's just go back to the system we had before. Well, you can't quite do that. The system that we had before was broken. The Bretton Woods Agreement was, it was no longer working and it can't be revived. Yeah. Uh, and so some of what we need to confront is that was broken and this new thing that we've tried has problems too. And so we can't go back to the old thing. What we need is is a new, new thing. What we need is to, to once again uh, address the problems with our present yeah. reality. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because you also bring that in when you talk about financial markets in the book. And uh, you write, uh, there's little foundation for the nostalgic narrative that policymakers could have prevented the modern era of financial crises by maintaining the mid-century system of banking regulations. And I read that and I thought, wow, uh, I I'm pretty sure that uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders would definitely not agree with that because, of course, both of them have called for reinstating the the 1933 Glass-Steagall Act. Uh, so, why why what's your disagreement with them on this? Why do you think that bringing that back would not have prevented the problem, and presumably would not be a good thing for you know 2019, 2020? Yeah, you know, there's a couple of issues there. Uh, the Glass-Steagall Act was written for a very different world. It was written for a world in which the United States was essentially a closed market. There were not foreign financial institutions actively serving American businesses. Uh, you could not easily invest in the financial markets in another country. Uh, that that world just has shattered beyond, you know, there's no, we can't return to a world in which the American investor, uh, you know, has only the choice of, you know, whatever that bank is called and it's a wonderful life. Like I can right now, while we're talking, invest in a Japanese company or move my money to Germany or, you know, borrow from a Brazilian bank. The idea that the United States can control financial markets on its own terms, it's a myth. It's a dream. Uh, we live in a very different world today. Uh, and the Glass-Steagall Act was specifically designed to preserve a distinction that had almost entirely ceased to exist in practice by the time that the act was actually repealed in the late 90s. So the Glass-Steagall Act is a Depression-era creation that basically said that you know, banks needed to be either in the sort of the traditional banking business of collecting deposits and making loans, or in the Wall Street business of raising money for companies and, and investing in companies. You couldn't do both of those things at the same time. But by the late 90s, companies had learned to do both of those things at the same time. They just didn't have quite the full measure of legal permission that yeah. the repeal of the act finally granted them. So I just I just don't think that act addresses any of our present problems. Uh, I think it you know it has name brand appeal, and so politicians keep on talking about it, but they literally don't know what they're talking about when they're advocating for it. They're literally advocating for a law that would be completely meaningless in the modern context. And and in fairness, because you mentioned them, in fairness to Senator Warren in particular. 
she's a very sophisticated appraiser of financial markets. She understands this. Uh, her approach to regulation rests substantially on much more sophisticated and modern measures uh, to regulate the financial industry as it actually operates uh, in the modern era, in, in the present day. Uh, her advocacy for Glass-Steagall, I would classify as sort of, you know, an exercise in in nostalgia yeah. and and sort of name brand association uh but i don't think it's it's at the core of her approach to financial regulation right you know alan greenspan for the the end part of the economist hour period was sort of held up as this exemplar right of of this view and uh, when he testified before congress in 2008 he expressed uh, shocked disbelief that markets didn't regulate for the self-interests of, you know, I guess, well, of the interests of uh, shareholders' equity. and But in the book, you point out that what's shocking really is the fact that Alan Greenspan was so shocked because there were a number of points in the past where he expressed the same shock disbelief that markets didn't do what he expected them to do, right? So I want to briefly defend Alan Greenspan on one oh, level okay. before I make a broader <laughs> peek. So Greenspan uh, is, is sometimes is, is, I think, frequently misunderstood uh, in terms of what he was saying. Greenspan understood that markets were imperfect. He understood that there would be crises. The point that he maintained throughout his life, still maintains, uh, is that it is his view that uh, the downside of markets is smaller than the downside of regulation, that, that the failures of markets, which are real and will happen, will nonetheless be smaller and less consequential than the failures of a regulatory regime. Got it. Government will make, this is this old Friedman dictum, that government will make matters worse. So it's not, a, it's not an absolute claim, it's a comparative claim. And, and there is a distinction there that I think is meaningful. But that said, I don't think we've fully grappled. I don't think Alan Greenspan has yet uh, you know, been assigned the blame that he deserves for his enormous mismanagement of the American financial sector and the American economy during a long period as the most influential policymaker in Washington. This is a man who literally says that he was appointed to be the nation's chief financial regulator. And he says that when he took that oath, he didn't mean it. <laughs> uh, and, and not only did he not intend to regulate the financial sector, but he actively prevented other people from regulating the financial sector. Uh, and in this judgment, he was spectacularly misguided. And so, you know, a lot of if there was anyone in position to produce a better set of outcomes over the last 40 years, it probably was Alan Greenspan, who had he been uh, a little bit more, had he been at all interested in doing his job, had he been at all conscientious about enforcing the laws of the United States, had he, you know, it, you would have been in a very different place now. And so I think, you know, he really embodies the extent to which economists gained influence over the levers of power, came to be not just the advisors to policymakers, but to serve themselves in, in critical policymaking roles. Uh, and, you know, the confidence that they had, that they understood the world deeply informed the way that they operated in those roles. Uh, and, and the consequences were really dramatically bad. Yeah. One final question for you. You know, you your premise is that the Economist hours ended, and and I wonder about that because while I see a lot more uh, what you might call a counter counter revolutionary progressive thought uh, on this, 
I haven't seen any of that translate into policy. When I look at what actually happens, it seems to me that that kind of small government supply side thinking is, is really just about as strong as ever and is still the dominant paradigm. So do you, am I just being too pessimistic or am I missing something or has, has the economist hour well and truly ended, do you think? I do think that something really important happened uh, in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis, that there was a loss that if you go back before the crisis, there was this consensus that we understood how the economy worked uh, and that in key respects, you know, you really had the mainstream of economics was remarkably homogenous in its view of how economies work and what what optimal policies are. And 2008 shattered that consensus. Uh, and so economics is in the throes of of huge debates about foundational issues for the first time in a couple of generations. And policymaking is also in a state of turmoil, uh, much like the 1930s and the 1970s. We're in a period now where it is clear that what we were doing stopped working and not yet clear what we should do instead. Uh, and one needs to look no further than the presidency of Donald Trump. Uh, the current president has less regard for economists and experts than any of his modern predecessors. He has, you know, upended, you know, a very long-standing consensus about America's approach to trade. Uh, you know, he he has very little interest in the use of cost-benefit analysis. He, you know, has a disdain for methods of economic thinking and and you know the weighing of of costs and benefits or sort of systematic decision making in, in general. Uh, he he embodies one response to the breakdown of uh, the technocracy, which is basically, I think of it as turtle shell nationalism, sort of pull back into your shell and hope the rest of the world goes away. Uh, there are others. We'll see which ones uh, emerge over time. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't think there's any question. And, and it doesn't mean that the results are better. Like that, that, I think, is one misconception. Like the end of the economist hour doesn't mean that the bad things about the economists are go away and and life is better as a consequence. It literally means that that a paradigm has broken down and that we're we're operating at the moment without a clear paradigm. And uh, you know, there's there's some chaotic consequences to that. Absolutely. It's a very interesting time. And it was uh, also an incredibly interesting book. I you know, I would say for people who even if they think they don't like uh, economics, just for the stories and the people, it's worth reading. It's a great book. And I'm, I'm so glad you read it. And I'm, I'm thankful you had the time to talk with me about it today. Well, I was really glad to join you. Thank you. So, Jay, what'd you think? Um, actually, I, I, I tell you, I loved it. Um, Cool. I I think um, he he reminded me of of uh, like professors I'd had in in law school who I'd really liked. Um, I think that's, and maybe that's part of just the delivery. Um, but but no, he, look, he came across as uh, I shouldn't say came across as, uh, but but uh, it, I, I don't disagree with with most all of what he's saying. I mean, yeah. kind of what he was saying, he wasn't so much making. Uh, partisan political points or arguments. It was more just here's the analysis of of what's happened and where where we were and where we are. Um, and I think it's I think it's fantastically helpful. And it was even kind of fun. And maybe it's because I'm I'm sort of geeky. But to just to do sort of the refresher course on on economics in yeah. general. Yeah. Absolutely. Because um, so often we talk about these things and we sort of use shorthand for what, you know, here's what supply side is, here's what monetarism is. Um, but to sort of get sort of the backdrop of where that comes from. 
um, and the the historical context. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I tell you, that I'm I'm not necessarily a, the supply sider that I thought I was. I'm sort of one of these sort of modified supply siders, yeah. I guess. Well, and, you know, I think that's a great point. And the thing that I think a lot of people who don't have more of his an historical sense maybe sometimes fail to appreciate is how cyclical we see these things are, right? Kind of, a, a, you know, reactions and counter reactions, and they both tend to go a little bit too far, then they're pulled back to the center. And that's one of the things I love about our system in a broader, you know, perspective is that over time, these swings of the pendulum tend to sort of, you know, work themselves out in a way. And that to me is the genius of our system. Maybe that's too strong of a word, but that's, I think, a really great quality. But you have to understand that that's that's why we get these things, these these strong reactions to, you know, the the first Dickensian strongly reacting to the laissez-faire and then the the monetarist and the supply side are strongly reacting to the Keynesianism. And and if you just look at that one moment in time, you say, what's wrong with these people? Why are they so crazy? Why are they so extreme? But then if you kind of pull back and look at the larger history, like, well, okay, it's because of this. And that, that perspective I think is great. Yeah. Um, the, the areas where I, I don't want to say disagreed because I don't think that's necessarily fair. Um, and also, uh, you read the book. I didn't read the book. So I, I don't take shots about, well, you should have, you know, addressed this and, you know, and it may well be in the book. And, but the discussion of of antitrust uh, law and regulation, um, I think there's there's a piece that that's left out, and and that is, um, you know, he he made made the point of uh, antitrust law became sort of this, uh, you know, this is these aren't his words, but I'll use my words, sort of infected, <laughs> yeah, uh, enlightened perhaps uh, by by conservative free market thinking. Um, and and I would differ a little bit in, in that, to some extent, when when these laws were were created, there weren't metrics to be to able to determine exactly okay when are they being violated, right? You had the big trusts like okay that's easy to see. Well, you say well okay we'll bust we'll bust up Standard Oil, but other things what it comes along when there are other combinations are there ones that are economically good? And then there's yeah. So then you get in this whole. Um, type of economic analysis just because you you necessarily you know a court's going to say well how how can I tell someone give me a a metric right. a measuring stick um, uh, you know give me some kind of evidence to to show and, and the the most typical evidence in in um, uh, antitrust cases is you know of market dominance is you have the ability to control price and so that's I yeah, mean no, I, I, yeah. I think it's I think yeah. it's less of a less of a um, this was this was something that that folks free marketers thought up to uh, you know confuse the courts or change the law and more just look there there needed to be some yeah. sort of metric to do this and and antitrust law is, is a weird animal in that um, it, unlike so many other cases it it is sort of like dueling economists right it's not it's not what are the facts what happened it's sort of you know what? What conclusions can we draw from this economic analysis? And then the other side is another economist and says, "Oh no, this does affect price and ability to compete and so forth." Um, yeah, uh, no, so, I, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I think it's a great point. I, I, then, on the other hand, I feel like there are these important things that are just really difficult to quantify. And while you're, I mean, I think that it's important to have some sort of a standard. Oftentimes, I feel like we 
tend to discount things that we can't quantify as opposed to saying, well, this is important and we're going to try to weigh it, but understand that we can't quantify it. Things like, you know, he mentioned right. the uh, too much political power. Well, what does that mean? Well, I think a lot right. of people would say, I get that's important or the idea of maybe if we have a monopoly, there's going to be less innovation and I, we can't really measure that, but we get the sense that it kind of, that makes common sense to us. But how do we put that into our determination of whether or not we should break up this company? Right, exactly. And that's that's kind of my point is because how do you how do you present that to the judge? Yeah, yeah. Or the jury and say, look, it's it's too much. Well, because they gave this these many contributions. Well, I don't know. But did that really it's yeah, and that's the problem. There's just if you're if you're going to court uh, to seek some sort of a a you know, because because part of what what courts do is um, in saying one thing is okay or not okay, they they draw a line and say, okay, if you're on this side of the line, then it is okay. And and businesses particularly need that sort of metric. Um, you know, I would say most businesses don't want to break the law. Uh, they want to know what is it that we can do legally, and they'll, they'll look at where those lines are. And the more confused those lines are, yeah, the more uncertainty. Uh, the worse it is, I think, for all involved, because yeah. you don't you don't have you can't have that reliance on, you know, hey, this looks like a great idea. Let's move forward. Um, even some cases, for example, the recent AT and T um, uh, merger, right, where the, the Trump administration uh, tried to to stop, and the courts really slammed pretty hard, saying, look, there's no, you know, and again, that's that's sort of the this yeah, is the Trump administration tried, but but the, you know, the court saying. Um, uh, look on the on the on balance of the evidence, we we find that this is a a good economic uh, merger. It's good. It's good for consumers. Um, you know, I guess that's that's the thing. When companies try to make those really big, multi-million, billion-dollar decisions, um, they need to be able to have some kind of sense of where yeah. is this going. I hear what you're saying. I think, in a way, this reminds me of some other discussions we've had. In that, in that, if it's I mean, in part, this is an economic, when it goes to the courts, it has to be a legal and economic thing. You're saying, because we need those bright lines when we're talking yeah. about litigation. But so then you can make the argument then if we want to uh, effectively control monopolies for other reasons, for political reasons, the place to do it isn't through antitrust regulation, but rather through Congress passing laws. Yeah. Yes and no. Or, or if your concern is political power, then it's it's looking at campaign finance laws, yeah. right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. It's, an it's interesting. yeah. Some, something like that. Um, or or if it is just uh, we want to discriminate uh, against companies based on size. Well, you could you could draw some some size based you know yeah. parameters in, into a statute. Now, whether or not that's a good idea uh, is, right. is something else. Um, but it's a it's you know, clearly think, a political but, question. Again, but it, yeah. again, that's it's a political decision. Yeah. And you're not calling on courts to make a, a and, and that political decision can be right or wrong. And if it's wrong, it can be corrected. Yeah, and that's the nice thing about and this again, again you can see where this kind of ties back into so much of the stuff you and I talk about and agree about is that a lot of these things it's much better if they're worked out through Congress and not through uh and not through the court system. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anything else that uh stood out to you in an interview I, I felt like you know i while he's obviously a person of of the left and and so am i but i felt like it really it didn't feel that partisan of a thing i, mean, no, I don't know maybe it's just all. me okay yeah no i thought i thought he was very much you know, kind of down down the middle on things and again less 
I mean, he wasn't, it wasn't a polemical sort of sort yeah. of thing. If he's arguing a position, he's just saying, uh, here's the history. Here's, here's the, the, the facts. Here's what, yeah. you know, where, where we've been. Um, again, it's one of those where, where would we draw the line? I would be more of the, um, uh, uh less, less of a Keynesian, uh, obviously. And the argument, uh, that I, he sort of kind of made, and I, I'll, I'll make it more so against Keynesianism, um, is is that uh, look the the idea is that Keynesianism increases the velocity of of where money's of money moving, and that's good for the economy. And I think the the response to that, <clears throat> uh, the Friedman response, is that yes, velocity matters, and I think uh, everybody would agree that that velocity matters. Um, but it's, it's who is best positioned to decide that which direction that velocity is going, right? Like the market or, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So it's a matter of, look, if, if you think that, uh, it's a good thing that we need to inject money into the economy to, to boost things, there are two ways to do it. One would be a, let's have a big stimulus and the government will hand out money and decide where that money goes. Uh, another way would be a big tax cut. And then those people who who get the money can make up their own mind uh, what's the best use of that money. And, and I think the, the Friedrich position um, or Friedman position and and my position would would be that you're better off having that wisdom of crowds kind of thing where where everybody gets to make the decision about the best best bet on their yeah. money as opposed to government, as you know, the phrase goes, uh, picking winners and losers. And the, uh, sort of the more from the left response to that, I think would be two things. Number one is that because people don't spend all of a tax cut. Too stupid. No, 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 no. <laughs> that people don't spend all of a tax cut. So you have to cut more for the same size stimulus as opposed to direct spending. And number two, stimulus, you can just inject that and then it's done. But a tax cut isn't exactly forever. But once it's put into place, it's kind of hard to take away when the need for it is ended. So you can kind of that's, inject that's, the fair stimulus. Enough. Yeah, that's, 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 that's a fair argument is that, yeah, tax cuts that don't sunset are different from a stimulus and, and but that goes more to the 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 idea that uh, again that i would support of the you know the star of the beast kind sure, of thing absolutely. except yeah. it, it it has as he pointed out quite correctly it, it hasn't seemed to have worked so far no um it's it's just we get a, a bigger more in debt beast um so no i i think i think that's it was fantastic and that's the kind of thing i, I love that that we do that uh, is sort of a mini economics course, yeah. right? Because uh, again, I, it's one of those I I know enough about economics just to be dangerous. Um, <laughs> and, it, and you know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. a lot like. I mean, I, I can if you ask me to, I could uh, uh, explain um, uh, Einstein's uh, theory, uh, general theory of relativity, in in sort of broad outlines about how it works. But I certainly can't do the math. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, I think it's 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 interesting to hear from from the you know the real people who do the the real science on this. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Uh, to get sort of a, a second layer of of depth that I think in, informs. Um, you know, our, the rest of our discussions. On yeah. this. So it, I, I really, I, I'm interested in reading the book. I, yeah, I, it's, wanna, it, hopefully I can get around to that. So it's one of the best nonfiction books I've read all year, really. And, and so in, in doing it, it really did help to, I love that kind of historical perspective stuff as well. And so it was, uh, it was a lot of fun to talk to him and I'm glad you enjoyed the interview too. Yeah. One more thing that I, yeah. I, I wanted to point out, because again, I haven't read the book. This is one of the reasons I really like to, but I think that he highlights that so often, um, 
and this is part of these the uncertainty uh, that we have in economics is is like so much of this seemed kind of yeah he had these these great anecdotes about these various people who were involved in in uh, various decisions and and sort of the the persona of Milton Friedman the um, but but how how sometimes these are like weird quirky personal things yeah that drive this and and I'm I'm awful awesome also you know sort of fascinated by the that idea that that sometimes there is there's also this you know things fall in and out of fashion yeah right and it's it's you know their personal weird decisions that may or may not be rational yeah. um no it's and, great, yeah and i think the same thing you could say like because I, I like the history of you know like hard science uh there's also that that weird sort of thing of there were there were times when when um uh different theories you know on on you know whether string theory is kind of was in fashion now less so i mean uh uh you know einstein didn't like quantum mechanics because it just didn't see you know there, there yeah. was that kind of thing that it's not scientific it's it's personality kind of driven yeah. or it's rivalry driven um and i think that can't be discounted when we talk about our intellectual history yeah no, that's uh, on, on any subject but yeah. I, I think that was great that he had those those kind of anecdotes in there and because that's what it is just, you know, at the end of the day, a bunch of people trying to figure stuff out. Yeah. And, and, you know, there was so much that I didn't have a chance to ask him because we had limited time. But one of the things that kind of goes along with this is just the the incredibly important role that one institution played in all of this. And all, all these people that he talks about were connected through the University of Chicago's economics department. Yeah. And yeah. it's just amazing to me to think how this one school in this one city, this one department in this one city had just this massive, this massive influence on the course of 20th and early 21st century economics. It kind of blew my mind, really. Uh, and for people who aren't familiar with the Chicago School of Economics, the it's just a great, this would be a great introduction to that because it's truly amazing all these, all these connections that all go through the University of Chicago. Yeah, I think I was awesome. Oh, can I throw one more thing? Yeah, please again, do. I, I really yeah. liked it. I didn't want to, but I, I thought it was, was fascinating the, the distinction he made because um, this is something I had never really thought about, but then it's one of those, that's when you can tell like when you're dealing with like really smart genius kind of people is they'll say something that you've, you're like, oh, I've never really thought about yeah, that, but yep. now that I look at it, it's like so damn obvious, of uh -huh. course, um, is is that uh, the difference between economic regulation and then other health, yeah. safety, environmental regulations, the, the difference that we moved from in the you know beginning in the late 60s from the straight out price wage control type uh, economy to the the next level uh, of, of regulations and how those 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 types of regulations uh it's it's two different animals yeah mm -hmm. um and uh, i'd agree with them the worst the first one is is more pernicious than the first or right. than the second yeah. right yeah. there was straight out wage and price um so i i, I yeah but again i'd never really thought about that distinction um uh, between the two types and how that how that changed uh, in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, I thought that was a great point too. All right, well, Jay, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, listen to the interview and talk with me about it. Like I said, I, I find that these post-interview conversations, I've enjoyed all of them that we've done so far. I really think they bring something useful and listeners, we hope that you enjoy them as well. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you like what you heard. Listener support is what keeps the show going, and we truly appreciate it. When you become a monthly sustaining supporter of the show on Patreon, you don't just get our gratitude, you get a supporter's exclusive bonus episode each and every week. 
Also, supporters at various levels can get additional bonuses like Politics Guys gear and access to a special supporters-only Facebook group. To learn more about all this stuff, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can visit our website, politicsguys.com slash support. Subscribing to the show also really helps, as does sharing episodes. Word of mouth is, of course, the best advertising, and we really would appreciate it if you tell folks about the show. Leaving reviews and ratings on whatever podcast app you use is also greatly appreciated. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that at mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page where you can message us and we're reposting things throughout the week. It's facebook.com slash page. Finally, we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Benji Fishman, and Andra Mask. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.